Kia ora e um, hello there CV family. Now today we're finishing our summer series of reflections that are looking at this little scripture from Lamentations 3 verse 40. It goes like this, let's take a good look at the way we're living and reorder our lives under God. Now this scripture has been drawing us to considering God's reordering work in this very disordered time that we are all in. Uh, we started two weeks ago by looking at how this little text is a lament and what that means. And then we looked at how we must examine. And last week, Alicia added her reflection about how we must prioritize God. Now today, I want to look at one last thing. And all of this, this lament, this examine, the seeking of God, it's all facets of one of the core practices of our life following Jesus. The practice of prayer. Now, prayer is not just to speak with God, but also it's a practice that is a reordering work in us, both in medium and in message. To explore what I mean by that, I want to start by taking us to a scripture from the gospel account of Jesus, where he himself undertook a bit of reordering in a rather disordered scenario. So I'm reading from Matthew 21, 12 to 13, just a couple of verses, but it says this. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those who were selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare that my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now this is actually quite a full on passage where Jesus is not his usual calm and peaceable presence, but instead he's this fired up prophetic activist. Here he is sorting out the disorder around the temple. He's quoting Isaiah where the prophet had said, the temple will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus points out the chaos of greed that has now been surrounding the temple, this unholy commerce and all this money making. And in a piece of activistic theater art, he literally turns over the tables and the chairs, these, these things that are holding up these corrupt affairs as an act of repentance, and he declares, this is meant to be a house of prayer. It's gritty, like a piece by Banksy that's been spray painted on a street wall. It's provocative, it's confrontational, it's a public statement. Jesus is not messing around with this reorder. He's calling for something to be back the way it was meant to be. I wonder if there are tables in our presence today that Jesus might want to turn over, flipping them as an act to say again, this is meant to be a house of prayer. Now, the church in the New Testament is often a metaphorical church. As in what I mean by that is metaphors are provided in the text of scripture to give us the ideas of what church is meant to be. A lampstand, for example. Well, if we unpack that analogy, we get a place that illuminates the darkness with God's presence of life and mission. Or another one, a body. Again, unpacking that analogy, we end up with this picture of diversity being unified, where difference is honored beautifully. Or 
the image of a new living temple. Well, each of us a stone making it up, and Christ is the cornerstone holding it all together. All of these are images and analogies. They're biblical and they are true, but they're to get us imagining what being a church is meant to be marked against. But, but, but the problem with metaphor is it leaves a bit of wriggle room when it comes to understanding and, and interpretation. You know, sometimes it's just better to get things told straight. And for this, there are a few particular times where specifics are listed about what church is meant to look like. Tactile descriptions that are concrete assignments to be. And one of these, as we see in the text today, is quoted from Jesus himself. He said, we are to be a house of prayer. Now, this is not a metaphor. This is not an analogy. This is a literal one. So in saying this, Jesus had in mind something that was already in action. The temple and the priests who worked in it were a real and living symbol that Jesus could point to, like signposts for what he meant. Like if I was to make a point by talking about COVID press conferences in Ashley Bloomfield, we all immediately know the ins and outs of what and who I'm referring to in nearly every detail. The problem is though, Many of us don't regularly see the temple and its priests as a tactile symbol in play, like the first century audience did. So we, we haven't seen this glorious building for God and its priests busy in action to imagine what's going on here. Our historical distance to this means that we've, we miss a lot of the details and a lot of the nuance, which is sad because ultimately it means we are missing out on rich truths to live into and ways to be together. So, so allow me a moment to point out one aspect in particular that Jesus had in mind as he talked about what this house of prayer was to be. And to do so, I need to speak for a moment about the idea of consecration. Consecration. Consecration is something and someone who is set apart for the work of the sacred. Not just the everyday, but also the divine. Now, the temple was a consecrated place, priests were consecrated people, and their work in the temple was consecrated work. Consecration means communion with God amongst the bricks and the stones, amongst the soot and the ash of the fires, the cleaning of animal waste, amongst the trimming of lamp wicks and the making of music. Where there was something natural, there was also a dimension of it being seen as telling another story of spirit and truth and prophecy. Now I wonder, do we see our places, our lives and our work in the same kind of way? I mean, it's a challenge for me to be, to be sure. But to consecrate something is to realign something for a holy purpose. And here, Jesus is saying, this is what my house is to be consecrated for, as in, it's to be set apart for this purpose. This place must be for prayer. Now, John Tyson, author and pastor of Church of the City in New York, he says, many of us think we should pray, but not many of us know we must pray. Now, consecration means we change from this should to this must. So, a few words now on that movement. I know that mentioning prayer 
is one of those things that means a lot of people have started to glaze over and mind has entered screensaver mode. Now I also know that mentioning it can also be quickly followed by a feeling of guilt that we're not doing it enough or well or consistently. I'm aware I'm losing some of you now as you say to yourself, prayer isn't for me, Dan. I've tried, but it's for those who are more spiritual than me. Well, chances are you, like John Tyson is saying, view prayer something you know you should do, but struggle to fulfill the obligation. So if this is you, please just stay with me here. Because as frustrating as it can be, I also know how fruitful it is and how vital it is to make this realignment from should to must. Okay, imagine the most spiritually mature person you know. And I'm willing to bet, bet a lot of money actually, that you are seeing the fruitfulness of a life committed to prayer. Prayer is the common subject and language of all of the great saints. Prayer is always a well-worn practice of the most loving, calm, unhurried, unflappable, and peaceful disciples. It's often the unspectacular and hidden habit of those who have lived the most faithful lives in the way of Jesus. And when I talk to those living fruitful lives with the Spirit, prayer is just not an option, but a non-negotiable necessity. Being with Jesus daily is regarded as vital. They have embraced it as a core component of their day, not as an optional add-on. And they've wrestled their way through learning how to do it well. And so that's not to say that it's always easy and perfect either. In fact, for most of the above people I've just described, they would be very quick to say when it isn't and that there's a beautiful humility to their failings. But somewhere along the journey, they crossed the gap. You know what I mean, the gap. The gap where something we know we should do becomes something we must do. Perhaps an analogy might be helpful here. All of us would say that good communication, consistent presence, and vulnerable openness to another person are the markers of a good relationship, right? We need a blend of all of those things, and we must have them. We know when they're absent, don't we? There's a difference in the quality of the relationship when we should be, or the other person should be, let's be honest, doing these things and aren't. If we don't change from that should to a must, often a relationship breaks down. Usually it's, it's, I'm sorry, usually it's salvageable by making commitments to some changes. Things like promising to have better lines of open communication or putting the phone down in each other's presence, or taking undisrupted walks to spend quality time together, or having those late night, honest, deep and meaningful chats about what is really going on under the surface at the moment. We would all agree that these are the actions that must happen if a relationship is to grow in health. But sometimes though, when these changes are only kept in the should category, and they're not viewed as a must, commitment? Well, these changes, it's just not given the same effort and the relationship is on track to be less than it could be. It'll become unhealthy. It may even die completely. This is a fitting analogy just to talk about the necessity of prayer because if we don't learn to abide with Jesus well, 
If we keep him in the should category, we are in danger of degrading the health of the relationship that we have with God. We'll fall into the same trap as Jesus was acting on in the gospel reading today. Ultimately, we will live out of the lie and the temptation that we can do this alone in our own strength and apart from communion with him. We'll believe that our natural business is good enough to get by. Rather than being consecrated people, we'll set up new market tables of our own. And Jesus' words here, were that he turned the temple, we turned the temple into a den of thieves. And it could be said of that today still, because those tables that we're setting up, they are robbing us of true spirituality and freedom with him. Now, this, this might all sound a bit full on, but today, in this, this, this talk, this letter, this epistle, this is in some way a repentance call. A call to turn from our old ways to the right ways. A declaration that in many ways we've forgotten the consecration that we were set apart for. And I'm hoping that we might choose to go forward into this moment ahead in the right way and differently. A question, you know, what a church that considered it vital to be a house of prayer, what would they see happen in the city? What kind of people would the church, would the people of that church become? What stories would they live out, I wonder? Well, to find out, we must become the consecrated people who live with a conviction that we must pray. Where we are not good at this yet, well, we're not alone. We can be like the disciples who came to Jesus, committed to this endeavor of prayer, and yet, in their inability to do it well, had to ask him, Master, teach us to pray. Which brings me to learning to pray. How do we learn to pray? How can we pray better? How do we grow in this endeavor together? Well, Well, Jesus and the church have some wisdom And if I could paraphrase his answer to the disciples in Matthew 6, it's essentially this. Start by showing up to a place of prayer with some words that Jesus had actually prepared earlier. So firstly, we show up by making a place and consecrating it, setting it apart and making it a place for the work of God conversation. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6 verse 6 to go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray. This is, the, this is best to be done in a secret place. It might be your deck. It might be your favorite chair. It might be the block that you walk around each day alone in the morning. The places can be varied, but the point is, do you have a place? Now, now I, know, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking this, but God's everywhere, so I don't need a place. And I agree with you to a point. Like like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, where can I go to flee from your presence? Nowhere. And that's the point. Nowhere. No place is away from God. But not all of our places are equal in what they do for us. We need 
a consecrated, set-apart place because set-apart places set us apart for consecrated things. The scriptures are full of places that God has shown up in and spaces that were prepared to be holy places for that to happen. Amongst all the normal and everyday places that we live, we also need a special place of special things. Think of it like our kitchens. They are full of utensils that we use every day. But yet we also have that cabinet or that drawer where there is some fine china and some special silverware for the special occasions. You know, we've been asked in Lamentations 3 verse 40 to examine our lives and to reorder them under God. And it's pretty hard to properly examine our lives amongst a construction site or in the middle of a sports arena. We actually need a space that is dialed down to quiet and to calm. We need a space that draws us to consider the right things and to notice God's presence with us well. You know, in that space, you might need a table. You might need a candle and a journal. You might need need a chair that is in front of a window with a great view. It might be your favorite chair with coffee in hand in the morning before the house fills with activity. Or it may be a seat in an old church or a park nearby on your lunch break from work. You might have the space in your home, or you might need to go elsewhere for it. But the point is this, you need a consecrated place, a spot in your world where you can name as holy, set apart as a place, and frequent it. And so alongside the place, you also need words. So I'm a big believer that any sincere, honest, and raw words directed to God are fine, I'm also a person who prays in tongues regularly. But I want to move the bar up a bit here. And I want to say that if we are to mature as prayers, we need to learn a bigger vocabulary of consecrated words. Words that have been prepared and set apart for prayer. Now my prayer life, my prayer life has matured significantly over the last 10 years because I stopped just using my own spontaneous prayers and instead started to routinely sit in the prayers that were written long before me. So here is where what has been given to us through generations of faith is such a gift. We do not need to reinvent the script. We have it in the model of Jesus where he gave us the Lord's Prayer or the use of the Psalms. We have the liturgies of the church, 2,000 years old, and we have the historic prayers of great saints. You know, contrary to what it may seem, it is not more spiritual to speak only on sort of spontaneous utterances of the Spirit and from the heart. It is also just as valid to speak the consecrated words of the church and our faith that have been declared for generations and curated in liturgies. These prepared words become like like a trellis that our prayer vocabulary can grow against, helping us to grow straight and true. They also become like the scales that we can learn on an instrument. They enable us to then impromptu solo with greater understanding and to stay in key. And we need to learn to play the song of consecrated words that has been going on long before us. It is good for us to do so. So to learn to pray well, we need a consecrated place. We need consecrated words. Those are the two ground level things of any good house of prayer. They're the starting point of living well as a consecrated person. 
Which brings me to how we're going to do this together. Now, as a church leadership, in this season of reorder, we sense to make a literal house of prayer, a consecrated space with those consecrated words so that we might live as consecrated people. Now, normally as a church, we would start the year with a week of prayer. But this year, with the coming wave of Omicron ahead, and our, our gatherings are currently on hold as a result while we wait, for the, wait this out, we sense to make a space not just for one week, but a space that will always be open for you as our church to come and to encounter God. A space that we set apart for only this. Some rooms for prayer and for prayer alone. We have just the place. Upstairs of Community House were a couple of rooms that this would be perfect in. So, on February the 14th, we will be opening our 24-7 prayer room. And it will stay open until further notice. Our team are currently creatively turning the upstairs of Community House into a new, dedicated, full-time space of prayer. A chapel-like space that is always open to you. And our invitation is this. Can you take the hour that you normally would have spent coming to church on Sunday and instead, in this season of Omicron, could you come to the prayer room to pray during your week? Come that you may be in a place made and set apart for you to encounter God afresh. Come that you may be a church that amongst the disorder of this moment is becoming reordered into a house of prayer. Come that you may be reordered with holy words for this moment. Come that you may um, add your sense of what the Spirit is saying to us all to the wall of prophetic things. Come that you may eat and drink at the table of communion that others of our community will be eating of in the hours before you arrive and in the hours after you leave. Come and practice abiding with Jesus. Come by yourself. Come with someone. Come with your circle. You choose. But come. Yeah. Why not book in right now? You know, get yourself ready for coming by looking at uh, the website page centralvineyard.org slash prayer room and scheduling in your hour. All the details are there on that page and the sign up is live now for you to get your name down. Uh, here's a little challenge for you actually. Why not book in three slots for the next three weeks? As repeating a new thing is a great way to truly experience it and to form it further. And once you sign up, you'll be given all the details of how to let yourself in, how to head upstairs, and how to get praying. There you're going to have the prayer room all to yourself, unless of course you book it in with a friend or a circle of course. And you're going to get to enjoy our consecrated space made for you to come and pray with consecrated words as a consecrated person. Come, let us pray. Now, Pete Gregg, the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement and the pioneer of the prayer room model that we're using, he says, the goal is not just that you attend a prayer room for an hour, but that you would become the walking around prayer room all day. My benediction today is this. May we become the people of prayer that Jesus himself said we must 
back out.